Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everyone. Good evening and welcome to this policy pitch event at this wonderful forum, the State Library of Victoria. This evening's event is held on the homelands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and I want to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, along with the elders of other communities who may be here with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Paul Austin. I'm the editor at the Grattan Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined on stage tonight by two, and soon to be three, energy experts from my far right, Guy Dundas from Grattan Institute, and Ross Edwards from Energy Australia. So we've got the industry analyst, that's Guy. We've got the market leader, that'll be Ross, and we're soon to have the market operator, Audrey, as well. So we're going to have a well-informed discussion this evening. I'll introduce the panel more formally and fulsomely soon, but first let me briefly outline the structure for this evening. Each of our panellists will give a brief presentation of uh, perhaps about 10 minutes, which will leave about half an hour for questions from you, our audience members. We've already received a number of uh, good questions that some of you have sent in when you registered for this event, and I'll be hoping to put at least some of them to the panel members, but we absolutely encourage live questions from the floor. So please be ready to put up your hands when that time arrives. Okay, so it's a big and it's an important topic, so let's get to it. Our first speaker tonight is the industry analyst, Guy Dundas. Guy is a colleague of mine at the Grattan Institute, where he is our energy fellow. Guy's previously worked for, among others, the Productivity Commission, the Climate Change Authority and a range of government departments. And he is, most relevant to tonight, a co-author of Grattan's new report, released last night and called Power Play, How Governments Can Better Direct Australia's Electricity Market. You may have seen the report on the front page of the Financial Review. You may have heard about it on AM this morning. You might have read Guy's article in The Conversation. Indeed, you may have seen it trending on Twitter this afternoon. It's been perhaps among one or two other things, the talk of the town. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Guy Dundas. Thanks, Paul, and thanks, ladies and gentlemen, for coming out tonight to, uh, to, talk, uh, to listen to us talk about this important topic. So there on your screen, that plume of smoke, that's the last unit of the Hazelwood Power Station closing down in the Latrobe Valley. And when that photo was taken in March 2017, it's probably fair to say that even uh, a highly informed energy analysts didn't quite know what was in front of us uh, here in the national electricity market and particularly in Victoria. So since that time, uh, power prices have increased substantially and there have been some high profile uh, blackouts, uh, particularly last January in 2000, uh, this January just passed, uh, 200,000 Victorian households lost power 
And uh, as the Australian energy market operator um, forecast in their last report, there's a, a, a risk of the same again this summer if actions are not taken. So it's been a wild ride since March 2017, and that's why our topic is avoiding another Hazelwood. We don't want to see uh, things play out quite this way again. And the critical aspect that, that, that I'm sure we'll touch on several times tonight is uh, notice of closure. So as I mentioned before, this, this photo was taken in March 2017, but the official notice of Hazelwood's closure only happened in November 2016. Now, you don't need to be an expert to know that you can't build a power station in five months. And so what's happened is that investment has, ha has substantially lagged this closure. And we've seen a tighter energy market uh, with higher prices and um, greater threats to reliability. So a key aspect of uh, managing coal closures and avoiding another Hazelwood is this issue of closure. And we want to get it right because Hazelwood is just the first of many. Um, Australia is expected to transition away from coal over the next few decades, and this is one potential picture of the future. Uh, this is the, the, how the coal-fired capacity in the national electricity market might decline over coming decades based on uh, dates notified by the generators under existing market rules that give their, if you like, best estimate of when they'll close. So that's quite a substantial transition, uh, particularly in the 2030s. And because we are here in Victoria, I particularly want to use uh, the closure of the Yulorn power station in the Latrobe Valley as a case study that, to motivate some discussion tonight, not least because we, we have the pleasure of um, Ross Edwards uh, on the panel tonight, who um, it works for Energy Australia, the owner of the Yulorn power station. And uh, Yulorn is the oldest of the remaining uh, Victorian coal-fired power stations and almost certainly the next to retire. So we here in Victoria are very interested in, in what happens with that power station. Now, when I put this chart in the slide pack, I was fully aware that it probably doesn't do uh, your lawn justice because it is presented in the context of the entire eastern seaboard uh, national electricity market. The lawn closure is highly significant for Victoria. So when it closes, we'll have roughly half the coal capacity in Victoria that we had prior to the Hazelwood closure. So clearly that's a very different market to just how it looked only three years ago. Clearly something very significant and something that we want to manage, uh, manage well. So what do we know about the Yulon closure? And I'm sure again, Ross will be able to add to this uh, or correct me if I've made any mistakes. So the dates notified so far of uh, what we might call a staggered unit by unit closure of the four units of the Yulon power station over the four years, 2029 to 2032. Uh, those dates are based on the notification given under the existing three years notice of closure rules, um, which is a, a market rule with penalties for non-compliance. In addition to that, um, Energy Australia has um, made a commitment to give five years notice to the Victorian government under their coal deed. So when their coal mining licence was extended, um, they made this commitment. And there was some speculation about the future of this power station earlier in the year. And I think it's fair to say that in response to that, um, Energy Australia sought to put its position uh, in the public and that there is a direct quote. I'm sure you can all read. Um, but I'm intrigued by the phrase, uh, not a substantial change in the market. And I'm going to speculate on what we might be talking about when we think about these changes in the market. So I don't think it's Victoria's renewable energy targets. So these have been around for a while. Um, up there on the chart, I've got um, some data, some historic data above the black line and some targets uh, for future dates below the black line. 
Uh, now, the 2020 and 2025 targets um, were announced in 2016 and legislated in 2017, so they're quite a, an established part of the Victorian landscape. The 2030 target was announced in 2018 but is yet to be legislated. And I think it's fair to say that certainly in terms of the 2020 target, Victoria has gone from 5% renewables to 20% renewables um, in the last financial year. It looks well on track to that 2020 target when you consider wind generation coming in. Uh, and as I say, these targets have been around for a while. Perhaps what is a greater source of uncertainty are emissions targets. Now, um, the Victorian government has sought to um, set targets under its climate change legislation and it's commissioned independent advice led by Greg Combe, what I've called in the, in the slide there, the Combe Report. And it has reported uh, recommending interim targets for 2025 and 2030. They're based on a benchmark year of 2005, uh, and the targets there on the screen, as you can see, 32 to 39% below 2005 levels by 2025, and 45 to 60% by 2030. Just to emphasize, this is not official Victorian government policy, but the Victorian government is legislatively required to respond to this report and to take it into consideration by March next year. And let's apply, and these targets are for the entire Victorian economy, all sources of emissions. So let's apply them somewhat mechanistically because otherwise I'd have to make a whole lot of very difficult assumptions, but let's apply them to the electricity sector and assume that the electricity sector does its pro rata share of those targets were they to become Victorian government policy. Now you'll see that the 2025 level implies a level of emissions that are roughly consistent with where the sector is today. So let's say there's some wiggle room. Obviously there's some gas fire generation in the market, but you would say that there's room for the current generation mix to comply with that target. The 2030 target looks uh, more challenging. I think it's fair to say that there probably isn't room for three brown coal-fired power stations in Victoria under that 2030 target were it to become official government policy. So you can see why that there are genuine questions raised about the future of the Elon Power Station, both in Melbourne and in the Latrobe Valley. And uh, uh, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. And particularly, we want to make sure that process is uh, well managed. As I said before, um, notice of closure is important. And really, the critical reason for that is so that we can have timely replacement investment. And that motivation was what led to the existing rule around three years notice of closure. Uh, and, and I would also assume to the Victorian coal deed requirement, um, three years allows a reasonable amount of time for, a, for a, a response through new investment. When we looked at and considered the policy options to manage coal closures, uh, we felt that the three-year notice of closure rule probably is not sufficient on its own. So the penalties for non-compliance are, are really quite mild and it's quite a flexible mechanism so you can nominate a date and keep pushing it back and achieve a lot of flexibility with how you comply with that rule. In our view, we need more certainty to, um, to achieve that outcome. Uh, another option, uh, best exemplified by, or worst exemplified by the Commonwealth's current, current task force to look at options around the Liddell coal-fired power station is what I would call ad hoc management. So we'll look at it and we'll get some people in a room and we'll see what we come up with. Now, in our view, this is just not a viable policy option. It cre creates very unhelpful questions around whether coal-fired power stations will or won't close and clearly makes it harder to then replace it. If you're second-guessing whether, say, Liddell would be subsidised to continue, it's much harder to commit replacement investment. 
So that one just doesn't um, pass, uh, pass muster. We also looked overseas. Um, Germany has uh, had a high-profile coal commission to look at a phase-out of coal, and that's a very substantial process that has government support now, the outcomes of that process. We felt that that wouldn't translate to Australia well, given the political um, contentiousness, if you like, around climate policy in Australia, so we didn't feel that that one uh, flew. Legislated exit has been used in the United Kingdom and Canada, but I think it's important to emphasise that that's to deal with a very small share of coal generation, roughly 10% in the overall mix. In, a, in the NEM, that number is well north of 60%. And so we think that different uh, and more flexible uh, policies are needed than a simple legislated exit date for coal. And a final option also drawn from overseas is what's called uh, reliability must run policies. These are used in some United States power markets. Now that's essentially where the market operator, so in our case, Audrey, would um, identify that if a, a plant were to close for, for economic reasons, that would create a reliability problem and effectively negotiate with that plant um, to continue operating with assistance from the market operator to, um, to keep that going. We had a couple of concerns with that. So it's hard to determine whether a plant is economic or not. And so clearly plants are, if they are going to put their hand up and, and, and seek money if they, if they have the opportunity. A second concern is that it doesn't deal with the, the real risk of a, a technical failure of a plant. Clearly you can't, you're not going to be able to pay enough to get a plant that's had a major technical failure back online, so it's not going to deal with that technical failure problem. And having worked through those options, we proposed a, a fairly novel coal closure model uh, in our power play report that Paul mentioned that we released uh, last night. And I'll use the lawn as an example of, of how that might work. I want to emphasise that this policy was crafted for all coal closures across the NEM, and it's not, it's not about uh, your lawn specifically, but it's interesting to see how it might work in that case study. So let's talk about it generally first. Uh, our concept is that uh, generators would put funds into escrow to provide security against their orderly closure. They would only get those funds returned if they closed within the window that they had nominated for closure, with some limited exemptions, which I'll talk about later. Now, importantly, the generators would nominate their own closure windows to retain a degree of flexibility in the policy, and flexibility would also be achieved by allowing younger generators, so for example, the Loy Yang generators in Victoria, to nominate a longer window where older generators, such as Yalorn, would be required to nominate a shorter window and each generator would tighten their windows over time. Funds would be cumul accumulated progressively over time, but they would need to be substantial to have significant compliance incentives. You could cut it many different ways, but indicatively we're talking about uh, several hundred million dollars for a substantial coal plant. And the windows that they nominate must be con consistent with the principle, the established principle in the market of three years notice of closure. And as I mentioned before, um, fun the key thing is that funds would be returned if the generator complies with that uh, nominated closure window with only limited exemptions. That's what drives the incentives to give the orderly closure, the credibility around closure, which in turn should drive replacement investment in a timely manner. And those limited exemptions, we would see a body, in this case, AEMO, make an assessment about the effect of that closure on reliability. So if a plant wanted to retire early, and could do so, and AEMO certified that that would happen, could happen without harming the market's reliability, 
then they should have their funds returned. Equally, if a, if a plant wanted to continue beyond its uh, nominated window and could establish with the market operator that delayed closure was necessary in order to maintain the market within its uh, uh, reliability settings, then that also would be allowed. So that's a, quite a tight set of exemptions to make that policy credible. Now let's move to the, uh, the Yalorn worked, uh, worked example. And I'll work through two in parallel and we can, we can see how this plays out. So let's work with um, a, a simple 2032 closure um, based on the notified date at the moment. I'm not gonna do it unit by unit, just for simplicity. So uh, we would suggest that your lawn starts with a three year window, which it would nominate at 41 years of age. And so indicatively, let's call that 29 to 32. As I mentioned before, it would need to tighten that window and that would occur five years later when it would tighten it down to essentially a 12 month period in the window 2031 to 32, where it best identifies closure and 2032 would be the last possible closure date for it to um, keep its money. But acknowledging processes such as the um, emissions target process in Victoria, it's entirely possible that Ross and his colleagues would form a view that there was no room for your lawn in the market beyond say 2030. So let's consider an accelerated closure scenario. In this case, Indicatively, they would nominate an earlier window to give themselves flexibility to close within a realistic window. So let's say the 2021 window nominated would be 26 to 29. Now, to comply with the three-year notice rule, if they wanted to close at the front end of that window, they would need to nominate in 2023 or 2024. By 2025, their flexibility would have been resolved and the, the identified window would have to be 28 to 29, which then becomes the, uh, the, the closure date they would need to comply with to achieve that, to, to have those escrow funds returned. Now, we recognise that this um, imposes constraints on generators such as Yulon. Uh, we recognise that the holding cost of putting funds into escrow uh, does impose a cost on, on generators and that some of that may be passed on to consumers. But we also recognise that Sudden closure has substantial costs and reliability implications for consumers and that timely replacement investment is, is critical to this transition. So in our view, uh, the insurance, if you like, that this policy purchases around closure date and the benefits that flow from that um, are worth the price. I'm sure Ross will have a different view and, and I look forward to, to hearing from him. Um, but we, we wanted to put this policy out to stimulate discussion around how to best manage uh, coal closures in the interest of a, a, a well-managed but flexible uh, transition to cleaner generation in the national electricity market. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Guy. That's a terrific overview and you've raised um, a few ideas that I'm sure one or two of our panel members might have a view on as well, so thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to say that our second speaker tonight is Audrey Zimmelman. Audrey, as many of you will know, is the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Energy Market Operator, AEMO, the body that manages the market. Audrey has vast experience in the public, private and not-for-profit energy and electricity sectors particularly in the United States, most recently having held the positions of Commissioner 
and chair of the New York State Public Service Commission, where she led the design and implementation of extensive regulatory and retail market changes to modernise and transform New York State's electricity industry. Audrey is a recognised national and international expert in energy policy, markets and smart grid innovation. Now she's at the very heart of energy policy in Australia and we're delighted to have her with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Audrey Zimmerman. Good evening, and you know we often talk about congestion in the power grid. I got stuck in the congestion on our roads, so I apologize for being a bit late. Uh, you know, I also want to congratulate uh, Grattan on another very good report. Uh, always great to see your your work; it's very insightful. And you know, for most parts, as I, I read through it, I have to say we're in agreement. So um, I'm glad to see that, although. Uh, that's always a little scary sometimes, too. It's always nice to have a bit of dissension. Uh, I think I clicked this one. Is this the arrow? Nope. There you go. So I, I did want to pick up, and, and, and because the, the topic tonight is around uh, coal exit, i talk a little bit about that. But let's, I want to put it a little different perspective. AEMO's responsibility is, is in the operations of the power market, we're also responsible for the planning. And we have every, now every two years, we develop what we call our integrated system plan, and it's a truly a system plan. We're not just looking at uh, the networks, but we're also out looking at generation. We're also looking at distributed energy resources, and we're really trying to forecast, based on engineering requirements and cost, what is the likely uh, type of investment that's going to be happening on the power system and how can we be prepared for it? And without question, we're seeing uh, the most uh, significant change that we've ever seen in the power system uh, across Australia. And uh, I won't go into it, but I'll say that Australia is leading the world in many directions, particularly in the area of, of the increase of rooftop solar. But in terms of that, what two things are, are happening. One, like many of the developed nations, we're seeing an aging power system structure. Most of our generation, particularly coal generation, is, at, is getting to the end of its useful technical life. And so we have to start thinking about, in terms of the industry, what are we going to use to replace those plants? And this is just a function of, of age, and that's something that's happening. The other thing that, that's happening is, is that because, actually, as users of energy, we become more and more efficient, and also because of the increase in distributed energy resources, and also because really our economy has changed away from mass manufacturing, we're actually seeing for the first time in this industry that while we can have economic growth, we don't necessarily associate economic growth with electric usage growth. And even with the onset with electric vehicles, et cetera, we, we don't expect to see huge amount of demand growth even with population growth. And that's just because we're being more efficient around how we use energy and also because we're, we're putting in so much rooftop solar. So what does that mean? Well, well, Grattan points out, there's, I think you said, $400 billion of, of new investment that's gonna have to come in over the, over the next 20, 30, 40 years to actually replace the old coal, these power plants and also aging infrastructure. Now you could say, well, that sounds like a lot. Okay, so let's go off by 50 billion. 
We're saying $350 billion, just to be generous. That's a lot of money. When we built our power systems in the last century, we built them over a period of time after World War II, when we started to electrify the economy. And at every year, there was growth in electric usage of somewhere in the order of 2 to 3% over periods of time. So that meant when we were building out these systems, and they were built out by actually companies that actually could, were running, as you know, the state-owned entities who own the generation, own the transmission, own the distribution. They were built out, but on the basis of the fact that usage was growing, so that the costs of these very large capital plant were spread over a much bigger growing, grow, uh, growing uh, usage, which meant that you were able to manage your costs better. Now that we see demand flattening, and usage flattening, that means that with the replacement of this investment, we need to be absolutely certain that every investment dollar we're spending in energy is the lowest cost investment. That's why AMO does this planning, is to figure out what's the best type of investment to come in, because we are worried about the affordability of energy. And so that's, that's why this is critical, and why it is critical that we think about the transition. Because what we don't want to have happen is, is that coal plants retire and when we were expecting them to retire in five years or seven years, they retire in three years, and suddenly we have to build a power plant that we really didn't need because something else was coming in that was cheaper. But because we have this reliability gap, we need it to keep the lights on. And so that's why we're talking about coal exit. It's really a, it's a very pragmatic question of, if you know you're building a transmission line and that transmission line is gonna give you access to a lot of new renewables, and suddenly a coal plant exits that you weren't expecting, and suddenly you have a, a reliability gap, we have to kind of rush in and do something. And, that, and that's why we want to talk about this in a way that sort of we talk about as managing the transition. So for that, I think we have to think about in terms of big P policy and small P policy. Big P policy to me is the kind of things that some governments are talking about, like Germany and Japan and California and New York, where they're actually saying we want to exit one technology base and enter into another technology base. So um, in California, they're talking about exiting uh, nuclear because they don't have any coal. In Germany, they're talking about exiting coal and nuclear. And they realize these are massive economic shifts. So they're putting programs in place to think about how to make this shift occur. It's a real technology shift. Here, and I agree with Grattan, we're not likely to see that type of technology shift in Australia because it, it's just not the way we work here. But we are seeing something very different that they're not seeing in Europe and, and elsewhere, is that because we have such good um, land here for wind and solar, and because of the nature of our climate, what we're actually seeing is as the coal, and because unlike in Northeast US where, where there's fracked gas, and I don't, I'm not getting any political, so there's very cheap gas available, we're not seeing that the, when the coal exit retires, actually more fossil-based generation coming in naturally as a cost element. What we're seeing is, is that the cheapest alternative once the coal retires is a combination of wind and solar and storage. And so there's an element of this of recognizing that unlike other economies, we may see this natural shift occur in Australia simply because economics is driving it. And so the question then becomes, is this small p policy in my mind, which is how do we make sure that when a, we're, we know that we're looking at an aging fleet and we're looking to replace it, so we're doing that with a combination of transmission because we have to build 
the transmission to places like Western Victoria, which didn't have resources before, but now is a good place for resources, that we're doing this in, in a very managed way because these are big investments and you want to be as efficient as you can. And so how do we manage this, what I would call is a, is a, is a very different issue. I think what, what this issue is going to be driven by two things. One is uh, owners of these plants, because we do have a liberalized market, making a very rational economic decision that as we add more renewables, and including rooftop solar on our roofs, the revenues that they would otherwise get from being able to sell their, their output are not going to be as high. And so here they have an aging plant that, like an old car, is going to require a lot more capital. And the money isn't coming in, so they're making an economically rational decision to say, actually, I, I can't make money out of this plant anymore. That's what I hear, think you're hearing from EA. And so we're going to have to retire it and replace it with something else. What we want to do is make sure that the market can, can react to that. So one of the things that was put in place a couple years ago through the Finkel Review and, and the Energy Security Board is what we call this three years notice of closure. That did, was not in place when uh, the northern plant in Hazelwood retired. And so it is to require th uh, the owners to give us three years notice, but it's not us as a system operator, it's actually to the market. So the market can respond and people can adjust their contracts. It's a very economically based th thing to do. That, so, and I think that makes sense. And you're seeing people respond. I think the Liddell closure where they gave a seven years notice um, there was just announced closure in Queensland today, which is giving us 10 years notice. So people are responding to that, and your lawn has too. So I don't. I think that what you're hearing from the generators is they don't really have a problem, and they understand the importance of this, and they they want to provide that kind of notice. The next question is is that well, what do you do if that creates a problem? Well, if it's a long enough notice, we should be able to respond to it because we should have the plans in place. But if there isn't, and there is a truly a, what we call a reliability gap, where we actually need the energy to be able to make sure we have enough energy to keep the lights on all year long, is 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 there another mechanism? And that's that's sort of what we're talking. I think we're talking about today is what I call the small p policy. So there's two pieces that I think that have to be addressed. One is we have to get the markets right. So the the issue that we're grappling with in in the industry is that we recognize that uh, the cheapest resources today are, are wind and solar and some of the easiest, but the problem is, is we need something to complement that. We, we, can't, we have to have resources that, from an EMOS perspective, we can uh, turn up and turn down based on what's happening on the system. We have, they have to be fully dispatchable. To run a power system, the output end of uh, generation has to meet the needs of the demand on an instantaneous basis, and so we need this combination of storage and hydro and, and resources that can respond when we say we need you to increase or decrease your output. And that's the kind of resources that aren't coming in. And that is a, is a really a market design issue that we're starting to grapple with in the market is how do we pay people for flexibility? Because the market isn't paying for it and therefore people aren't getting the investment signal. So that's something we have to work on. That's a market entry issue. On the exit issue, on coal retirement, I think the issue there is we don't want to necessarily pay coal plants to retire if we don't need them for reliability, because then we're paying for something we don't really need. And so the question is, what's the right mechanism for that? My concern with the escrow, because we are so sensitive about cost, 
is that if I, if I were a generator and um, I were looking at this and someone said you need to put up some escrow because you're taking on more risk in the sense that your system may, something may crash and you may like to retire early and it may be a reliability issue, I would actually try to make sure that that risk is absorbed in my price for electricity because that's a new risk to me. And therefore, they would raise their prices to be able to do that. So we might be potentially paying for this escrow and never really need it. And it, and it really seems to me an, an, an unnecessary expense to put on consumers. That's why I am in favor of what, what we call the reliability must run. So I used to run, obviously, a market, uh, two markets in the US that had these kind of mechanisms. They're in most US markets. In fact, I'm not aware of any that doesn't have some mechanism like this. And they're actually mostly in most of the European markets too. I know England and, and Ireland have them too, but this is, this is how, to me, a much better way of working. So we get a notice from a generator. In the US, it's notices anywhere from 90 days to actually just a year and a half that they're going to retire. What we would do as, uh, as a EMO is we would initially do a study and say, is that gonna create a problem in the system, a reliability problem It's going to you know that we can't run the system? If not, we would say thank you very much for your service, and you know they're going to go ahead and retire. That's and that's great, and no money exchanged. If there is, the mechanism says, well, what they have to do is we would take a look at that, and the first thing we would find out find is there a, is there a way to solve that problem at a lower cost? Now the cost issue here, the way it works in the U.S., and I, I saw Grattan was concerned about this, is actually what happens is that the the generator has to open up their books. And, we, and then the regulator in the US, I did this when I was a regulator in New York and we did this at, uh, in, in when I was running another power system. Actually, they go through and they see their fuel costs, they see their operating costs, they essentially re-regulate them. And they're only allowed to recover what is what we call their cost of doing business on a going forward basis. And what we say is that if that cost is the least cost way of managing the system, there's no other cheaper alternative, we'll pay you those costs to continue to run until we get the substitute. And that may take six months, it may take a year, but what you're doing is you're just essentially saying, I need a bridge loan to get me to the next part, I'll pay you. And usually you only run that plant when you really need it for reliability, because generally with these plants, it's not like you're running them every day, you may just run them a few hours in the summer and you're just paying them their cost to be available during that period of time. And then as soon as you can find that substitute that's cheaper or the market just brings it in, which usually is what happens, you let the plant retire. So the, to me, it, you know, part of the Grattan concern is, well, we don't know what their costs are. Actually, that's built, built into it. You actually have to open your books up. Secondly, you have, an auction, you have a process to make sure that's the cheapest alternative. And the third is you keep it very much focused is, is that these are economic decisions. The only reason you would want to keep them in is if you truly needed them for reliability. So I, I think it's a much more efficient mechanism. The bigger issue, though, for us, I think, as we go forward is simply this. We, we are seeing this massive transition. We do need to know these plants are aging. The bigger thing that, that we're confronting in Victoria, and you probably heard us talk about this summer, is making sure that we have enough resources available to us all year long, including during the summer peaks, to, to, to make sure that we, can, we have uh, reliable, secure energy for, for people, because you know, that is really what you're paying for. 
And what we need to do always is, is now say, well, as the market is changing, we need to adapt our markets and regulations so that the investment, which we believe is the least cost investment, comes in in an efficient way. And so we could take advantage of that. So I look forward to the conversation. I always would prefer to agree with Grattan, but this one I think you got slightly wrong. Thank you. Thanks, Audrey. That's okay. That's okay. That was, in fact, a fascinating insight into the sort of risks that uh, that you have to manage and the thinking that's applied to that delicate task. So thank you very much. Um, I'll come to questions soon, but now to our third speaker, Ross Edwards. Ross is the markets executive at one of the big three energy firms, Energy Australia. Ross's team trades electricity, gold, uh, gas, coal, there's all sorts of things, renewables, uh, to provide competitively priced energy for the company's customers and to optimise the value of Energy Australia's portfolio of energy assets. He's worked at Energy Australia for more than 16 years in roles covering strategy, business development, wholesale market operations and trading. He's held board positions on a range of renewable development companies and is currently on the board of the Australian Financial Markets Association. He knows the energy industry like few others, and it's our pleasure to have him on our panel tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ross Edwards. Thank you and good evening. I'd like to just start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And also like to thank Grattan for hosting this event, because I think it's a great topic and, and it's a good one to debate. Um, so we've heard so far uh, from Guy and from Audrey setting the scene about from a markets perspective and from an industry analyst perspective. And you know, I think when you take a step back, you know, there is no debate that this sector is in transition. Um, I've read a number of stats lately where it's around that we're really leading the world in the rate of change, um, whether that's by penetration of residential households or megawatts installed of renewables per capita, uh, we're doing this at a rapid rate. Um, but when electricity prices are at record levels and there are blackouts, it's hard to argue that it's working for everyone. The frustrating thing about this debate is that we agree on more than we realise. And when we read this report, there's, there's a lot that we actually agree with. Um, there's a bit that I don't, which we'll get to at the end. Um, you know, Decarbonisation of our energy system and the wider economy is inevitable. It isn't whether we'll get to net zero emissions, it's when and it's how. And how isn't it exclusively about the technology, it also goes to fairness. The clean energy transition needs to work for everyone in Australia, no matter where they live, or how much they earn. The path has already been bumpier than it needs to be. So I couldn't really come tonight without talking about your lawn. Uh, so yes, uh, your lawn is the highest emitting power station since the closure of, your of um, Hazelwood. Yes, there's been calls to shut it sooner than um, its technical life of 2032. 
In fact, we've had protests similar to the people that are, were outside this morning, uh, this evening. You know, they'd like to see that shut much sooner than that. And, and we acknowledge this is a passionate topic um, and it's born out of concern for the planet and we share that concern for the planet. At the same time, a lot of people rely on your lawn, uh, households, businesses and communities. Your lawn powers around 2 million homes a day, uh, employs more than 500 people in the Latrobe Valley and swells to about 1,000 people during maintenance times. We spend two to 300 million a year to run your lawn. Uh, that involves contracting with over 240 businesses from electricians, welders, even the local news agency. Your lawn is a major economic contributor to the Latrobe Valley and wider Gippsland community. Thoughtful planning is needed to support the region through any transition. Our plans are to run the plant to 2032 as a statement that Guy had for as long as policy and regulation permit and there's not a substantial change in the market. There are changes. That could be tighter emissions targets that were mentioned before or other market inventions or changes and we can probably cover a bit more of that in Q&A. We've promised to our workers and the local community that, we sh that should things change and circumstances remain within our control, we'll give at least five years notice. Uh, we think that's the right thing to do. And our aim is to leave a proud legacy so that the eventual closure of your lawn becomes a best practice model for how to transition. As our Audrey would know, and as was outlined in the integrated system plan last year, a power station the size of your lawn could not shut down tomorrow. Uh, and, and for us to have the lights stay on this summer. We need to prepare and plan for this. At Energy Australia, we have work underway to explore opportunities to build dispatchable power to, when, to balance the influx of renewables into Victoria, ensure we have electricity when customers need it. You know, when we had the events last, oh, this summer just gone, but I think we had, when we had the, the load shedding in the system or, or, or the, the blackouts, I think we had about 8% of the installed capacity of renewables were contributing, and we had about over 80% of the thermal assets. We need dispatchable power um, to ensure that we've got, we're keeping the lights on. And we see this, this could come from a range of things. This could come from gas-fired generation, it could, um, pumped hydro, batteries with demand management, interconnection with our other states. We consider, when we look at those options though, we consider Victorian investments, supporting Victorian jobs should be the priority to do this. And we're prioritising investments, opportunities in the Gippsland region. It's not possible to wind the clock back and put Hazelwood back into the system and have the lower prices that it provided. But we can make sure that the next coal closure is better managed to smooth the price impact. We need to acknowledge that we're building a new system, so there will be additional costs in the short term but this will deliver longer term benefits. And I completely agree with Audrey. We need to ensure that we're looking at how to deliver this on a least cost way. That needs to be the focus. And as I said before, the transition's already been more expensive than it needs to be. To get this transition right, we need industry, governments, and the community to work together. Ultimately, if we are to reach net zero emissions, Australia needs to retire a lot of the coal-fired power stations. We need to get good at doing this. Uh, especially where there's so many jobs at stake. And as has been highlighted, there's zero spare capacity in the system, particularly in Victoria. At Energy Australia, we've been doing a lot. We've been getting very busy about what can we do as part of that transition. We've supported over 800 megawatts of new renewables into the system. The $3 billion of offtake commitments that we've provided 
has been a key part of the, the pipeline of renewable investments that we've seen. But we're also focusing on what do we do when the wind's not blowing and what do we do when the sun's not shining and thinking about what are all the options within flexible capacity, what we, we phrase as flexible capacity. The things in that space that we're doing, as I alluded to before, we're looking at what are the options uh, for the replacement of your lawn. Um, we're, right now we're building the, upgrading our Hallett power station over in South Australia so that we've got more megawatts for summer. With the support of the state and federal governments, we also underpinned or underwritten the two largest batteries here in Victoria. So we um, contract the output for those batteries and then dispatch those into the market. And so we're, we're trying to see and investing in these technologies early to see what role can they play? What will this mix of flexible capacity look like? What is the right answer? In other states, we're, we're looking at uh, gas-fired power stations in New South Wales. We're looking at pumped hydro everywhere. Um, and we're also looking at demand management. We run one of the largest programs of demand management with around 13,000 customers under our current program with about 50 megawatts um, where we can call on those customers to reduce demand at peak times. And we see that as a great mechanism for customers to deliver a more reliable system. But there is a lot of investment. Uh, we've all, I've seen some big numbers in terms of quite how much, and it's, if you actually take a step back and think quite how much needs to be done over the next 20 years, to me in this role, this is why I'm here, um, because I, I'm keen to see and deliver on that transition. Uh, but the, the numbers are eye-watering. They're bigger than we've dealt with in the past, and it's a, a once in a sort of lifetime transition. So, probably to the point that I disagreed with, which was really the cold closure mechanism. Um, the, I thought I'd just, you know, we, we operate as an owner of some of these assets today. We have taken decisions to close coal assets in the past, and we op operate as an investor in, in markets right now. And so I think, I thought I might just share what are some of the things we think about in terms of investments, uh, and how does this mechanism deal with it? The first thing we're looking for is, is there an identifiable need for the asset in the market and will that be around long enough for us to make an economic return? Uh, you know, that's, that's not an easy space when you're seeing things changing, taking view on demand and how things will change in the system and, and also what others are doing. What's happening with the cost curves of technologies? One of the things I'm finding tricky to get my head around is when is the best time to invest in something that gets cheaper every year? Um, when we're the off-taker or, or underpinning it, we commit to those costs for, for 10 to 15 years. Um, but if, if the wind is cheaper next year, sometimes in hindsight we'd all say, we should do that next year. Um, but someone needs to make those investments. And the same, and when we look at the battery cost curve technology, that's a very similar dilemma of now or later. And I think this goes a bit to Audrey's point about what's the timing, what's the right timing for some of these points for transition. Is there a risk that government intervention is going to lower the value of my investment over the life of the project? Um, you know, we've written off over a billion dollars this year uh, as a result of the price re-regulation here in Victoria. Oh, sorry, across in Victoria and across the country. They're all factors that go to our ability to invest in this, in this state and in this country. And lastly, it's what action by other market participants could impact my investment. 
And out of all of these considerations, I must say, assessing the risk of whether a competitor is going to follow through with their closure commitment is very low on the list. Um, it's not something, you know, when we're, we actually support AGL's notice period of providing seven years notice, we think that's the right thing to do for the market. Um, and really, the question for us is, what are the Liddell task force going to come up with? Not necessarily, was AGL true to its commitment? And therefore, putting aside three, $400 million, that's of balance sheet capacity that we could otherwise be investing in the transition to the future. We think that would be a better use of money than having it in these escrow accounts. I encourage you to read the whole report. Um, for those that haven't or, or seen the various Twitters or articles that have been out so far, um, you know, there's a lot of lessons of where we've gone wrong in the energy market. The sector's been reviewed from end to end recently, sometimes twice. The most prominent being the Finkel review in 2017, the ACCC review last year. Between them, they produced 106 recommendations, a blueprint, if you like. We support getting on with those recommendations, and then we can see if there's anything else that we need to do. I do think we need to get better at managing the retirement of big power stations, but if replacement capacity isn't ready to go, which is the case right now in Victoria, and we haven't planned to manage impacts on communities, we will repeat another Hazelwood. History tells us it's customers and local communities that pay for that. If the transition to a modern cleaner energy system doesn't work for everyone, it will take longer, cost more, and be bumpier than it needs to be. It's only by working together and building on what we already agree on that we can make it a smooth transition. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ross. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, we have three of the sharpest minds in Australian energy policy on stage here tonight, and they're now available to answer your questions. But before I throw over to you, I just want to ask one general question perhaps to each of you before we perhaps get into some of the specifics. And I might start with you, Audrey. Uh, Ross is talking about, we're all talking about a once in a generation transition. My question is, are you confident that we're going to pull this off? Confident we don't have any choice. So the, the, the difference between this transition and, and any other transition that we've seen in energy is it's actually starting with the customers. Uh, customers, end users, you, are, are taking a wholly different ro role around energy in terms of you're not leading, leaving the decision as to what you want to consume for energy to uh, large utilities or anonymous companies. You're making the decisions yourself by making decisions around putting on rooftop solar and choosing suppliers. So I, I would say, you know, probably what Ross would say, if he wants to stay in business for the next 20 years, he needs to meet the needs of the consumers and the consumers are saying, what do they want? So that's, that's why we have to do it. <clears throat> the other piece um, I think is, is really critical is the technology is changing so quickly. So one of the things AUMO is, is very much focused on is how do we manage a power system that's going from um, large central station power plants that provide a lot of services to a, a system that's much more distributed and much more digitalized. So it's a very complex uh, issue. But, but the fact of the matter is, as, you know, as a, a society, we have no choice but to make this change. It would be almost, you know, to my mind, and I've been criticized for it, 
is for people saying, oh, I, I don't really want it, the internet to happen, so I'm going to stop it. I'm a telephone company, and I'm going to stop that. That would be sort of silly. It's going to happen, and, and our job is to make it happen as well as we can. Guy, it's going to happen, but are we going to pull it off well? That's <clears throat> that's the big question, Paul. I think, um, I, I guess, consistent with what Ross and Audrey have been saying, I think the, the pathway, the, the strategy is quite clear. I think the future will be based on both distributed and large-scale um, variable renewable energy technology with, with storage and flexible generation to back that up. And um, but there's a lot of technical issues that arise while we're while we're making that transition. Now, if we're spending time arguing about the broad direction and arguing about the politics, then that clearly will make it harder. But I think the direction of travel is so clear that we will we will pull it off. It will be bumpier than it needs to be, but we will pull it off. It'll be bumpy, Ross. You've been you've seen extraordinary change, I'm sure, over 16 years at Energy Australia. Are you confident from where you sit that we're all going to be okay facing this extraordinary period of change still to come? Look, I, I do, I must admit, sometimes I find it a little daunting as to how we're going to pull it off. But um, at the same time, I find it pretty exciting. And, the, you know, I've been around for quite a while in the market and, and we used to talk about the renewables and it was around having a subsidy um, for, and there was a big difference between what you would do with, mm. with a subsidy or without a subsidy. And, mm. and I don't think we have that difference anymore. And we already, we have a retirement profile of, of these coal assets outlined on these charts. Um, so I think we can see the challenge ahead of us. Uh, the Getting the mix of technologies, I think, is going to be critical and ensuring we've got that balance of things that can firm up the renewables and really work for customers, involve them in the, their choices because they want to be more proactive in this. They want to take control of their energy futures as well. Um, so I think I am confident that we can get there because I think it, you know, we've got the technology, we've got a lot of people that are keen to deliver. Okay, we're all confident. Let's ask some questions. Um, I, if you would like to uh, test the expertise, challenge any of the things that you've been um, listening to tonight, please raise your hands. Please, if you get the call, wait for a microphone to get to you. And the last thing I would ask is please keep your questions short. We are certainly looking for questions rather than statements. And I'm going to start with the woman on my right in the middle there. Thank you. Hi, it's uh, Karis Palmer from Australian Energy Daily. Question is for Ross. Um, one of the things the Grattan Institute report did, which we obviously didn't have time to talk about tonight, was it sort of thoroughly eviscerated the government's underwriting program um, and the fact that it might not necessarily achieve the, the aims that it's trying to do. I'm just interested to what extent you think that that program is a threat to some of the coal-replacing assets that you're considering investing in. And if I can sneak a second one in, um, interested in, if you don't like Grattan's idea on coal escrow, what do you think about um, AMO and Audrey's plan on, um, on must-run reliability? Okay, two for you, Ross. Okay, to the first one. Look, I think from the federal government's perspective, when they're sitting there and seeing the situation that we're in with um, the, the risk of blackouts in Victoria... They feel they have no choice but to, to start doing things and acting in this market. And that's quite understandable. Um, personally, I think it's probably 
it's better to actually think about how we address that in the market design elements and ensure that we actually get the right signals for the capacity investment. Because once again, I look at the scale of the total investment required and think, is this what we're going to use our state and government balance sheets for? Um, or will it work better if we facilitate the private investment and create an environment that attracts that investment? Because uh, I think that's the critical thing, is how do we get the right investment in the right places? And I, I can understand the perspective of saying, well, if the private sector isn't delivering, then I have to do something. Um, but at the same time, it does create that overhang, that, that question of, well, what is, how are those investments going to play out? Where are they going to be? And what does that mean? And are they going to be economically rational sort of choices or, or motivated by other factors? So I, I find it challenging, but I understand where it's coming from. Uh, in terms of the mechanism, look, I think the, our goal is to try and ensure that we've got sufficient notice to have things in place in time. Um, having said that, it sounds like a pretty practical way for dealing with small movements of, of gaps uh, to, to an issue, not something that you want to rely on for a an extended period of time. Um, so if it's within six months or something like that, that sounds like a very practical thing. Um, but if it's, this is something that would need to work for five years, I, I sort of don't see, I think we want to rely on the market to deliver that. So Guy, can I put this back to you? It seems to be a two to one majority on the uh, stage tonight against the Grattan coal closure model. Given what you've heard, are you still backing it? Uh, yes, I am, Paul. Oh, really? <laughs> I think um, I definitely, um, I guess, uh, take the, the comments that Audrey's made around uh, reliability must run and, and particularly around, I guess, opening the books. Um, to me, that's still an economic um, retirement where a plant makes an argument that the finances don't stack up. Uh, the question still remains who bears the risk of a, of a technical failure and mm. in the uh, escrow model we propose that risk would sit with the generator. And I'm sure Ross doesn't like that, but but we think that they are ultimately the best people, best place to hold that risk. Uh, and the funds that would be made available could flow, for example, to AMO to manage the consequences of a early technically based retirement. Okay, thank you. Some more questions, perhaps from this side. Down the front here, please, the gentleman. Oh, hi, uh, a question for you, Ross. Um, we, the conversations drifted a, a little bit towards the, the overall transition process that everyone has been talking about. And uh, Audrey's mentioned the, the sense that the community is looking, and I think you have as well, Ross, to achieve that transition as fast as possible whilst keeping the lights on. But I feel as though a, a very important part of that is also keeping the cost down. I think the community is very conscious of this and particularly driving out businesses that are sensitive to the energy cost and sending them overseas. Would you like to uh, uh, give us a view about what this transition is ultimately going to cost uh, consumers? Because if we did have the renewables contributing only 8% in January when we, when we had that tough day, uh, the other 92% has to come from somewhere. Now, a little bit of it was snowy, but there's a lot to be built of... Uh, of, of that uh, responsive power that you were talking about, someone's got to pay for it. How is that going to feed, and the grid uh, to support it, how is that going to feed into the ultimate cost of power? 
And uh, is, is Angus Taylor right in saying power prices are coming down, it's all going to be fine, or is it looking a bit tougher than that? It all gets back to money, doesn't it, Ross? Tell, talk to us about the costs. So I think when we're, we're talking about the scale of investment that we have ahead, um, I think it's really important to talk about all of the, the costs in delivering um, a reliable system. And so that's not just how much the renewable element costs or the firming or the transmission, it, it's what's the best arrangement for all of that together. Uh, in terms of the cost levels, um, it's a difficult one to predict. The market that we have, I suppose, markets as a general rule overshoot in both directions quite often, is that you know, I would say during the time um, leading up to the closure of Hazelwood, prices were unsustainably low. Um, the, when we looked at, you saw the, the forced outage trend in Audrey's chart on, on the brown coal closures on that, which was saying, you know, we're seeing this trend of increased forced outages. I know as um, I was certainly part of the decisions at Yalorn of saying, how much do we spend on this uh, to manage the reliability and will we ever get that, will we get the money back when we're in prices in the 30s? Um, so that element, that was unsustainably too low. The prices that we've seen over the last year or so, I think from a wholesale perspective, are higher than they need to be um, to deliver on this transition. What is the cost that we need moving forward? I'd say somewhere in between those two. Um, so, it, but it needs to be a number that actually delivers on those, on, on actually supports the investment needed. If I could, let me just add to that. So, you know, we did a, a study when we did our integrated system plan to take a look at what would be the most uh, cost advantageous approach to, to replacing the coal. So you got, we have to keep in mind that these coal plants are retiring, this is, again, that's why I said it's not a big P policy issue of a government making a decision that we're getting out of a particular technology. The plants are retiring because they're old plants and they need to be replaced. The question really for us as a society is because electricity remains essential, is how do we replace those plants with the least cost alternatives and then what do we do around a market design and a regulatory design to bring them in at the most efficient investment level? Because one thing we can affect in how we design markets and regulation is the cost of capital. We're, we're not as a, as a market big enough in Australia, like uh, in some markets, to say we will drive down the cost of solar or we will drive down the cost of wind technology. That's a Nash international thing that's happening where these costs are coming down. What we can do in Australia is set up a regulatory and market environment so that the cost of capital that these developers need to, to get in order to invest is very efficient. And that will also affect their price to do, and then have a plan. So what the integrated system plan has identified is that if we do a combination of resources to replace the coal that is a combination, again, of wind and solar and distributed resources and storage and some gas, that is the least cost, and a, and a second study has been done because we're building real and the networks to interface it all. That that is actually over time, but what our calculation is is four billion dollars lower than any other alternative. So we are doing those studies, and it just it just means, but it but it is going to require investment. So you have to think of its relative, and the relative is is that I know my car is going to have to be replaced. 
what's the most efficient way to replace it? And that's, and that's the decision that, that we're actually making or, or the plans that we're developing so that investors can come in and develop the resources in the least cost way. Thanks, Audrey. Thanks, Ross. I have another question for the gentleman down in the middle here, which is going to be awkward to get to. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, good evening. Uh, a question related to the short-term reliability and peak periods coming summer. Um, obviously, this if the one or two generators have major problems and maintenance issues, suddenly we have blackouts and huge social costs and obviously much lower private costs for the major utilities because they'll get higher prices on the balance of their power. So I come back to a question of whether there's some sort of checks and balances that might be possible where the utilities that do provide reliable power get a very small premium on a daily basis but extraordinary penalties when maintenance falls so that you internalise the externality, as a treasury, good Treasury officer would suggest. Indeed. Audrey, can I start with you on that one and then I will get to you, Ross? So um, first let's, let's talk about what we want to achieve, right? And, and the fact of the matter is, is that as an, as an industry, we want to make certain that we have sufficient resources available during all hours of the year, including the peak hours. One of the things that um, we see in, in Australia is, of course, is that over the last uh, two decades, the uh, high temperatures have continued that when we talk about the peaks. You know, so we're talking about relative numbers of increases in temperature, but actually the, the amount of high temperatures we're receiving is happening much more often. And it's a big, it's a really, you look at the Bureau of Meteorology website, it's, it's, it's startling to actually see what's going on. What we're worried about is making sure that is if, if in fact in any given summer, like we had last summer, we have very hot days, that we have enough resources. Now those resources can be both by consumers who are able to voluntarily reduce their demand. Commercial customers have done that for a long time, but as we think about smart devices and uh, the rooftop solar combined with storage, there's a lot we can do on that front. The other piece is uh, then to make sure it's there. So we, we have proposed, actually, that we feel that the, the reliability uh, levels have to be at a level to make sure that it is there during the hot summers. The mechanism to get it there can be several mechanisms. One could be an emergency type, a, a reserve type mechanism that everybody shares in. The others could be you know, on individual retailers. We just need to sort that out. But I don't think there's any disagreement anymore that you know, when we are thinking about electricity, we, we absolutely have to make sure that the level of supply, and we recognize things can happen. You know, very unusual things can happen and the supply can go off. But generally, we should be planning to have enough resources to be available. We call it, a, you know, nine out of 10 summers, meaning that for the most part, even on a hot summer, we have enough available. And Ross, I sense that you might want to say something in answer to that question. Sure. Um, you know, just for context in terms of for major generators and the design of our market, um, what the majority of generators do is forward sell their output to help manage their cash flows. And so what happens on those hot days is that if your power station isn't running, you've already sold that power for, say, $100, and you need now, to, now need to go and buy it back from the market at $14,700. Um, so 
we tend to bear very significant exposures and have a lot of incentive to have our plants on when they're required. Um, and I think the other part there is from a vertically integrated player and, and to Audrey's point about the weather is that you know, we, we need to choose what is the right level, what, what, what do we think is the right probability of demand, uh, level of demand, the probability of exceedance. And generally speaking, on those extreme days, that's higher than the level that we've traditionally bought for our customers, in which case the vertically integrated players are, are more often than not short on those days rather than long. We, we really try and hope to get through those days um, with having everything that working that we have. Okay, I've been ignoring this side of the room. Are there any questions perhaps up the back on the far left, please? Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask Ross about, um, so we've been talking a lot about reliability around energy, but what about reliability around jobs? So I wanted to know what um, Energy Australia's plan is to provide a just transition for workers in the Latrobe Valley. Um, but also around um, mine rehabilitation and what your plan is to rehabilitate your lawn once it shuts down. Thank you. The community of uh, the Latrobe Valley after the Yalorn, Ross. Yeah, we wouldn't have uh, the Yalorn power station without the community down there. Um, they're a key part. Um, we're a major employer in that region. Um, we. We see that as a critical role for us in terms of ensuring that we do um, deliver on a just transition and that we do work with our employ employees uh, to help find them opportunities. Uh, I think one of the, we are trying to prioritise um, replacement capacity in the valley uh, or in the, in the region uh, to see, because we think that's a, a key part of the solution. The reality with that though is that there will be less jobs in the technologies that we're um, developing, the gas-fired technologies, uh, than there are in the current um, coal-fired assets. And I think that's something we need to face into um, in the region uh, and think about how we're transitioning that region now um, in terms of having a vision for what the future of the, the valley is. You know, there is a number of assets there on that chart that are, play a key role today, um, but we need that plan in place with the community uh, to deliver on that. In terms of our um, rehabilitation, that is something, you know, it, it's our, our key obligation uh, that we need to deliver on. There are elements to that. We see that as being a significant activity. Uh, we're doing that sort of work at the moment up, up in New South Wales, and we're also closely watching Engie in terms of how they're tackling that so that we can learn from uh, the work that they're doing. I want to squeeze in one or two more questions. The woman to my right. Thank you. Thanks. Um, question for Guy, coming back to the uh, policy proposal that you've put forward in the paper, and apologies if this is covered in your paper, I haven't read it yet, but um, it relates to what happens if policy ratchets. So if we come back to the architecture established by the Paris Agreement for emissions reductions, there is a intention that countries and jurisdictions will ratchet up their emission reduction um, objectives over time. And so there is this expectation that 
the ambition of policy and the ambition of emission reductions will get more stringent over time and that necessarily will flow through to the policy settings. And so if you're, you've got an, a, a policy proposal that penalises companies for accelerating closure against a backdrop of an expectation that we will have to accelerate closure, especially relative to current plans, if we are to meet the objectives of climate action, then how does that interact with the proposal you've put forward? Guy, are we sort of um, trying to push back the tide of inevitable movement here? Uh, thanks for your question, Kath. Um, look, we tried to achieve a balance between flexibility and certainty in the policy and there's a trade-off there. You know, you can't have one of, more of one without less of the other uh, and certainly recognise that concern. So we, we've um, built in a couple of sort of safety valves that, that I think deal with some of your concerns. Uh, the first one is around uh, the process by which generators nominate windows. So younger generators wouldn't even need to nominate a window until they reached, we suggested, 36 years of age and then those windows would tighten. So, for example, um, so people would be using the very latest information to set those targets as you roll through. So we're not talking about everyone setting a date in 2020 or in 2021. Some people will know the extent of climate action both uh, internationally and domestically when they're setting that first target and be able to set that target um, reflecting that knowledge. Um, the size of the window also has some flexibility. The third uh, aspect that we built into it was um, we do have a, an allowance to retire early if there's no reliability implication. So, again, if replacement capacity is built, a coal generator can retire and get its money back. So uh, that is a function of the market and the coal owner wouldn't be able to control that on their own. But as a general um, point, if that asset is replaced and redundant, then it can retire. Last question. Is this gentleman right here at the front? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, the elephant in the energy market is not represented here. You know, that's the federal government. So I'm going to be a little unfair. I would pose my question to that representative who's not here. And with the leg thereof, I'm asking you, what, what, what we're seeing as a public are these sort of weird forces coming from them. You know, we're looking at, at Hydro 2, massive sort of um, picking the technology. Now we're seeing the inquiry on the nuclear. And when we look at the analytics behind it, it doesn't make any sense whether it's the, you know, levelized cost of energy or the timeline or the cost of insurance. And yet, you know, we see this thing rising with, with all. Now you guys, each one of you, whether it's policy, whether it's business, whether it's the reliability of the market, is a particle moving in a force field, which, which that elephant is causing. How do you move in it? What do we understand? And I want to ask you, you know, try and explain to me what those forces are behind, you know, those decisions that don't seem to make sense to me. Well, I think that's a terrific question and I'm going to put it briefly to each of you and I'm going to ask it in an unfair way of you first, Audrey. Is the federal government a problem here? So, you know, I, um, I'm i looking at it in a, in a totally different way because obviously we're, we work very closely with all of the states and the federal government. But to me, what, what's happening in the industry is that there is an increasing recognition of the of the need to actually get things done. So there are lots of policy discussions going on, but at a very pragmatic level, what what we're working on, and we're very I, I feel quite optimistic actually with the formation of the Energy Security Board. So it has 
uh, AEMO and the Australian Energy Market uh, Oper uh, Commission and the regulator all in a room with two independent chairs, we're working through the issues. And, and so what we're looking at and the discussions we're having with the, with the governments is this, let's, let's focus on the critical few. We, we need to have uh, address the issue of having adequate resources. We need to have markets that, that actually then pay for flexibility and firming and, and, and make sure that we, the right resources are coming in. We need to make sure that we have what we call the integrated system plan and that it's actionable and we know which we're headed as, as an industry, including building out renewable energy zones. We need to make sure that we have the right information out in the market so that they, people can make good decisions. And we need to deal with this, what I would call this false safe of a, a, close, co, a closure policy to make sure we can manage the transition effectively. And lastly, but not leastly, we need to focus on the integration of distributed energy resources and energy efficiency. Because the best thing we can do is around that from a, both a cost perspective and, and certainly achieving what we need to do. And if we just stay focused, these are not, shouldn't be emotional issues, we'll, we'll get there. And I, you know, in my conversations with all governments, including the federal government, they, they all very much are sympathetic to that. And they recognize we need to be much more action oriented and that it's right there. So I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic that despite all the challenges we have, we have actually people who really want to get stuff done and they recognize that, you know, the importance. We can't, like I said in the beginning, we can't afford not to do the right thing because the, the entire economy depends on how well we run the power system and the, and the gas system as well. Ross, is that right? The, the sort of practicalities trump the politics in the en energy sector these days? Look, I mean... The ministers are—they're voted in on behalf of uh, voters, and you know they—they're acting in what they think is the best interest of um, their consumers and their parties. So you know I, we've got to acknowledge that um, we might have a view on on where we want to go and how that how we want to deliver that, but you know they're they're playing a key role, and there are different interactions at different levels, and it's quite different in different states and different. Regions, but but I would agree with Audrey that the um, acknowledging the how much we need to, to get done, um, you know, some of the policies I feel you know the the point has been we'd like the private sector to, to deliver it, but if they ha if they won't, then we've got no choice but to act, and I completely understand some of that um, because someone needs to, and so our challenge as an industry is to get in front of it. Um, there was, we've had a number of reviews, there are a number of things which um, we do need to improve on as an industry. And so we've got to take that on board and improve. Um, but, you know, it, it has its challenges from time to time. <laughs> Guy, in one minute or less, can you make sense of the politics of the energy sector for us, please? Uh, echoing Ross's comments slightly, I think our report that we released yesterday um, recognised the pressure on governments to act. Uh, we don't agree with how they've acted, but we recognise that there is a demand to address these issues, that they, they recognise the challenges in front of the energy sector. We feel ultimately they're adding complexity to an already very complex space and their interventions will generally be counterproductive and would very much like them to step back. But I think the direction of travel, as I said before, you know, Paul's will we deliver, will we get their question? I still think the direction of travel is, is very clear and we will get there. 
these interventions will add cost and they'll make it harder than it needs to be, but I, I still feel ultimately that we'll work through it. Thank you, Guy. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you, Ross. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid we're out of time. Can I just say a couple of quick thank yous before I let you go? I want to thank the State Library Victoria staff. It's really a great privilege for us at Grattan Institute to have a close partnership with this terrific institution. I want to thank Andrew McDonald and Bridget Fielden from Grattan Institute. They did a lot of hard work to make this event happen tonight. So thank you, Andrew and Bridget. And thank you to you, our audience, for your participation, your engagement, your questions. Please keep in touch with the Grattan Institute via our website. And please keep a lookout for future policy pitch events here at the State Library. We try to put them on about once a month. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, would you please join me in thanking our terrific panel of experts, Guy Dundas, Audrey Zebelman, and Ross Edwards. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. 